a cath lab, which is technically called a cardiac catheter, called a cardiac. <laughs> How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck a chuck wood? Hi, everyone. I'm Jolie Hales. And I'm Ernest DeLeon. And welcome to the Big Compute Podcast. celebrate innovation in a world of virtually unlimited compute, and we do it one important story at a time. We talk about the stories behind scientists and engineers who are embracing the power of high-performance computing to better the lives of all of us. From the products we use every day to the technology of tomorrow, computational engineering plays a direct role in making it all happen, whether people know it or not. And welcome to part one of a two-part episode series about the heart. And I'm not like talking about romance or love or anything like that. It's more like the literal heart, the organ. Jolie, have you seen The Wizard of Oz? Yes. <laughs> Where is this going? This is not on the script. <laughs> do, do you know who the Tin Man is? I, I know like of his character. I don't know the actor's name who plays him. So would you say that our listeners really need to have a heart for this episode? Oh, come on. I should have seen that coming from a mile away. Oh, my. That's all the Tin Man wanted. He just wanted to have a heart. I forgot totally that the, the Tin Man wanted a heart. I could remember the brain for the Scarecrow. The Scarecrow the wanted the brain, Tin Man heart, the tin and the, man lion, the, heart. the lion wanted courage. I can't remember, but once he got his heart, wasn't it like a... Like a keychain or something. Like I don't either a keychain or like, like a, a necklace. Necklace or... like Flavor Flav had, you know? <laughs> I, I just remember like them finally getting what they wanted and I don't remember any kind of material change uh, <laughs> in, in their like quality of life after that happened. Like it it seemed like it was kind of pointless. I, I don't know. <laughs> like the entire movie's about them looking for like a heart and a brain and then they end up with like a keychain and Everyone lives happily ever after, Ernest. Yeah, I mean, because it, 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 it is her dream, right, that this is happening. Yes, yes. Uh, so it was meant to teach her a lesson. I just don't know what that lesson was. <laughs> in consideration of your kindness, I take pleasure at this time in presenting you with a small token of our esteem and affection. So just to point out, I, I looked it up. Not only was I right about the heart, it was a giant, like a big old heart on a necklace, and it had a clock in the middle of it. So it, basically, it was Flavor Flav's one of his. <laughs> it was on a chain, technically, but I mean, it could have been a necklace. But like, I don't know where they. That's probably the only prop they could find. Uh, <laughs> that was heart related. <laughs> that was heart related. It was. It was a clock. You know, Flavor Flav wasn't born yet when this movie came out, so I'm. I'm. I, at least I don't think so. So there's some kind of like multiple levels of meaning here. I need to go figure this out later. <laughs> I don't know if like Flavor Flav stole it from the Tin Man because he wants to have a heart or I, I, I don't know. Let me hear you say Flavor Flav! I'm not familiar with Flavor Flav, but I'm just, I'm looking him up on Google Images and you're right. He <laughs> legitimately, <laughs> he legitimately has like a giant clock hanging around He has, he has many of them. He has many. What like, in the world? How, like, like he's a musician, I, obviously. <laughs> I don't listen to any of his music. I never, I don't think I've ever heard it, but his shtick is, is that giant, like giant necklaces with clocks on them. A lot of these necklaces in these pictures that he's wearing, these aren't even clock necklaces. Like they were not made as a necklace in the first place no it's like some of these he legitimately took a clock off of exactly. a wall at some like office building and put a string around it and yep. he's wearing that like yep. over his belly clearly but, i'm not 
a pop culture expert at all and this is so fascinating to me i know that's exactly the funny part is that that's what he's wearing with his outfit so it's it's kind of funny it's totally the tin man i had no idea yeah i never put the two together until look look what happened it took supercomputing to put those two things together man <laughs> i don't know if supercomputing wants that credit let's be honest that's true they probably <laughs> I think don't. we can do a little bit better than the office wall clock wrapped around someone's neck hit me i know now why it's a clock the clock ticks it it represents a heartbeat oh doesn't he say that i probably again i haven't seen it in over probably three decades but i just it, it came to mind i was like why on what does a clock have to do with a heart they both tick people call them tickers it ticks <laughs> look it ticks but yes we're going to be talking about heart that is a little bit more than the keychain that the tin man got at the end of the wizard of oz poor tin man and this is really a topic that we're going to talk about for the next two episodes because it's something that pretty much affects every single person within earshot in one way or another, I would say. So rather than squeeze it all into just 45 minutes, we thought we'd try to do the subject more justice and talk about it over two episodes. And so to kick us off, I thought we would start by asking Ernest a personal question. It depends what kind of personal question you mean to ask. Okay, well, you don't have to answer it if it's too personal for, you know, the world. (laughs) But here's the question. Have you ever known anyone, aside from the Tin Man, who has suffered from heart issues? I like how you said aside from the Tin Man, because I was going to say, as a matter of fact, (laughs) the the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. Stupid Tin Man. I could stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper, if I only had a heart. Have you ever known anyone who has suffered from heart issues? Yes, uh, several people, actually. Yeah, that's not unexpected. And I mean, not to go down a somewhat depressing statistical rabbit hole for too long, but heart disease, as many of our listeners, if not all of them probably know, is not only the number one cause of death in the United States, but it's also the number one cause of death globally. And it's responsible for 16% of deaths globally and then around 23% in the United States, so even more so in the U.S. than than globally. Well, we know heart disease is the number one killer for both women and men, and that's why thousands across the country tonight wearing red to raise awareness about heart health. And when I say heart disease, this includes pretty much any of the problems with your heart. So that's like blocked arteries, irregular heartbeats, heart defects, and all of that. Absolutely, and this is something that I, you know, not to give away my age or anything, but have been paying more attention to lately is... Not just the, you know, the science behind this, but also preventative measures, right? One of the things that's big in in medicine right now is trying to prevent things from happening. Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you've already gone down the road a bit, trying to... Like backtrack? Backtrack back or, or, or at least pause the negative progress, right? And be able to, you know, maybe live a longer, better life or something like that. Yeah, well, I saw on your Google calendar when I scheduled this recording that you've got a gym appointment right after this. So good for you. You're taking those steps. That's right. Seven days a week. Seven days a week. Oh, my gosh. Seven days a week I'm in there. Yep. Man, good for you. That is dedication. I I go running only like three days a week. So heart disease obviously is so common, and it's probably safe to say that because it's so common that all of us know someone who has probably struggled with some kind of heart issues. 
Um, maybe even know people who have died from from heart issues. Yes, I had a very good high school friend whose father passed away within the last couple of years before a pandemic, but yeah. uh, from from heart issues. So yeah, I know it is devastating when it happens. For real, yeah. My grandfather, for me, my mom's stepdad, so we're not biologically related, but he really did help raise my mom for a number of years. And by all accounts, he was an amazing human being. And he actually died of a heart attack back in 1978 when he was 53 years old. And that was before I was born. So I never actually got to meet him. And then his son, who's my mom's stepbrother, who was obviously in the same genetic pool there, also had a heart attack in his late 40s. And his teenage daughter, who's my cousin, revived him. And later it inspired her to become a nurse and her two sisters. So it's this family full of nurses because of that kind of whole health incident that happened there. Yes, that's usually how it happens. Yeah, it's interesting how an event like that can shape our futures and shape our decision making. Yeah. You hear that a lot, actually. It does. And I mean, it pretty much goes without saying that heart disease has affected all of us. I think we've established in some way. And if it hasn't yet, it probably will. But the good news is that technology is advancing and there are some really amazing treatments available that honestly, I often wonder if they could have saved my grandpa had they existed all those years ago. So today I thought we'd take everything kind of full circle and not only talk to an awesome engineer who helps with the development of some of these life-saving technology, medical device type things, but, and and that's a scientific term, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. The most scientific. <laughs> so not only will we talk to an engineer, but we'll also talk to somebody who has actually had one of these kinds of devices implanted into his heart. Then you still got what I call idiots like me, people like me, who really still can't fully appreciate what health means until you go through it and sometimes go through it over and over and over again, because then I have to go, oh, I have to see my doctors and I have to actually ask them questions. I have to tell them you're wrong. I have to tell them, get me another doctor. You know, it takes a long time to learn all that information. Meet Tom Broussard, a 69-year-old man who, growing up, always considered himself really fit. He ate pretty well throughout his life and he enjoyed playing sports like baseball, tennis, roller skating, and squash, which... I'm sorry, I did not think was a sport. I had to legit Google it. And apparently it's a it's a two-player indoor racket sport that I have clearly never played. Yeah, myself either, but we haven't gone into the story yet, but I'm already kind of foreshadowing here a little bit. And I, you know, in his case, I can see where he might get upset if his health takes a turn for the worse because he was active and ate well throughout his life. Whereas myself, if something happened to me, I'd be like, yeah, it's perfectly understandable. <laughs> You're like, oh, I kind of knew this was coming. And yeah, I did not pay attention to this for like the first. <laughs> 20 Twinkies a day, maybe not the best. <laughs> yeah, per- first several decades of my life, I didn't pay attention to this at all. It wasn't until recently. And so I could see where, you know, some damage was done. <laughs> I'm still a big roller skater. And for Tom, life was pretty good until tragedy struck the family in the late 60s. Actually, the day after Tom turned 16 years old. So he and most of his siblings were home with their grandma and they were decorating their house because the next day was actually their parents' 20th anniversary. So it was obviously worth this family celebration. Mm -hmm. But then Tom's dad, who was this tall and skinny man, he was also president of a local theater organization. So he and his wife, Tom's mother... And then also Tom's sister and then the sister's boyfriend, they all went to the theater to visit for a bit while the rest of the kids were decorating at home. But then while they were at the theater, 
Tom's father suffered a heart attack that suddenly took his life, Mm. and he was only 49 years old. A lot of my work comes from who I was before all of this started, and a lot of it came from my dad's useful lessons. Again, when you're a kid and you're learning new lessons, you don't really know that they're lessons. They're just sort of happening, and your body and your mind, thank goodness, remembers those things and uses those skills and those lessons in the future. When Tom graduated from high school, He joined the Navy, which included four years of the Naval Academy and then a few years working with submarines and destroyers. And eventually he left the Navy and then he worked a few different jobs in naval engineering, including being the director of mechanical engineering and design at Bath Ironworks, which is a big Navy shipbuilder that is one of the largest defense contractors in the world. And then he pretty much left Bath Ironworks to run his own staffing and training company for 15 years. And then in his early 50s, he decided to pick up a research PhD, as one does, at Heller School at Brandeis University in Boston, then went to Vassar for a year, and then he went back to Heller School to be their associate dean. So, you know, basically he's, I'd say, kind of smart and kind of motivated. Absolutely, because I could not possibly fathom trying to pick up a PhD in my 50s. I think my schooling years are behind me. However, (laughs) it does sound like his dad's lessons really did lead him down some good paths in general. Yeah, I would say so. And in 2011, while Tom was in his late 50s and serving as this associate dean, he then started to kind of notice something was off with his health. I felt a tug in my chest. I physically felt that and talked to my wife and said, I'm feeling a tug in my chest, especially after we have a meal and go for a walk. So he went to the doctor who told him that he needed to have a stress test done, which is where the patient basically has a bunch of those sticky electrode patches put all over their chest. And then they do something physical, usually like walk on a treadmill, maybe ride a stationary bike while their heart rhythm, blood pressure and breathing are monitored by this medical team. And Tom, who was tall and skinny at the time, remember he does all these sports, he was not what he envisioned as the body type that would have heart disease. He assumed they'd schedule the stress test for a week or two later, but... He says, no, you're staying right here and arrange for a stress test 15 minutes later. And when the results of the stress test were not so great, the doctor said Tom needed to come back for a cath lab two days later And in case you're lucky enough to be unfamiliar, a cath lab, which is technically called a cardiac catheterization lab, is where the patient basically is put in a special hospital room and then is awake while doctors do a bunch of tests and procedures to see the arteries. And then they check like how well blood is flowing to and from the heart. I actually got to see it. I've never seen anything like this before. I've really never been in a hospital before other than, you know, when I was young. I got to actually see that all of my heart arteries were clogged terribly. My dad had died young from high blood pressure and obviously cholesterol. I didn't realize that I had inherited that. And uh, within weeks, I went in for open heart surgery and a new aortic valve replacement. He had a quadruple bypass where doctors go in and try to clear out or even rebuild all of his clogged arteries. Unfortunately, all that blood that is used to go through the heart to pump everything else it needs to do were terribly clogged. 
A couple were 100 and the other was 80 and 90% blocked. Without this surgery, Tom's chances of having a heart attack at any time were very high. So it came not a moment too soon. And since open heart surgery is pretty invasive on the body, the recovery time is usually around 6 to even 12 weeks. And three months later, when Tom had finished just recovering from the surgery, his body had more surprises for him. He had a stroke. I lost my language, and of course I was a dean, so clearly I could not read, write, or speak well, and obviously lost my job as a result. Um, and that took about four years to get better. He got what is known as aphasia, a disorder that results from damage in parts of the brain that are responsible for language, and it robs someone of the ability to basically speak, write, and understand both written and verbal language. And as for the cause of the stroke? About half of people with a stroke, doctors can't tell what the reason was. So they call it cryogenic strokes, meaning basically we don't know where it is, where it came from. In my case, most likely when the body is healing, like open heart surgery, and I didn't get blood thinner, it is coagulating. And unfortunately, it can spin off a little tiny little clot because that's what it does to heal itself with the clotting of, of the body. Uh, but if one of them breaks off and goes flo floating away, that is probably how it got to the top left of my brain and had an ischemic stroke. So his stroke was most likely related to his open heart surgery then. Right. He thinks so. In fact, since all of this has happened, Tom has made himself basically a research student of human health. I started to figure out on the inside because you lose your language, but you don't lose your intellect. So I had just gotten my research PhD and I was still trying to figure out what my big, because when you have a PhD, a research PhD, you are really looking for what your biggest research issue is going to be. And I was still hadn't figured out what it was going to be until I had my stroke and aphasia. And of course, after that, I realized, oh, that's what I'm here for <laughs> is to figure out how the brain works so that you not only can you get better because a lot of people do get better but now i wanted to know how i could explain how i got better so tom dove in head first researching and even writing books about aphasia and how the brain works but before that just two years after having his stroke while he was still learning how to communicate again his genetic underlying condition of creating plaque and calcium buildup in his body created an issue with his kidneys, and he had to have a kidney removed. That is just horrible, the luck this man has. Right? And then two years after that, he had two more small strokes. What they call small strokes, TIAs, transient ischemic attack. I had two more of those, but again, you go all the way back down to plaque and both of my neck arteries were almost completely blocked. So I had to get both of those redone. And for a couple years after that, believe it or not, Tom was actually feeling pretty good when he was able to recover. He was still playing sports and then eating well. And he had even just finished a big trip traveling around the country speaking about aphasia and his experiences and research. But then I started feeling like I couldn't breathe. And I thought, oh boy, maybe it's, uh, it must have something to do with my lungs. Again, I'm in sort of an idiot health person, you know, still not fully understanding because it's the heart. I never thought it was the heart because I couldn't breathe. After 10 days of meeting with multiple doctors who couldn't figure out what was going on, who gave him drugs to treat some kind of lung condition that they couldn't understand, 
Another doctor finally did an x-ray on his chest. And he said, oh, oh, your, your lungs are filling up. You have heart problems. Go to the ER now. So Tom literally walked a couple blocks down the street right into the ER. And within an hour, they took a look at everything and they said, oh, your heart is in trouble. You're clearly your aortic valve stenosis is happening and it is really in trouble. And I was admitted immediately. It turned out that the new aortic valve he had gotten during his bypass six years earlier was not only damaged, but it was just about destroyed. The aortic valve, as you may decipher, is the valve that opens and shuts, regulating blood flow from the heart into the aorta. If it doesn't work properly, it's kind of a big deal. And normally, the aortic valve has three leaflets, or flaps, you might say, and they open and close, allowing blood to pass through. So basically, imagine a thin circle cut into three pie pieces, right? So each of these pie pieces is a leaflet, giving way for liquid to pass through, and then they close and join together again into the full circle. And we'll post a video demonstration on bigcompute.org to show you what we mean. And if an aortic valve experiences plaque buildup or calcification, then it can stop opening and closing correctly, maybe not even being able to close at all. And if that happens, the person can experience shortness of breath and chest pains and eventually heart failure. But the symptoms typically come on gradually, so you know something's wrong. But in Tom's case, not only was it calcified, but one of those three leaflets of his aortic valve appeared to be torn off completely. And that's why I went from fine to you're gonna die almost immediately. So the doctors had to figure out what to do and fast. They wanted to get me stable because you can have these attacks and at that point, you are dying. You feel like you're drowning. They give you a massive uh, CPAP to keep your breath working. And depending on how long it takes, then you'll get stable again. Often, patients in as dire situation as Tom go into open heart surgery. But as we established before, that's majorly invasive on the body, further complicated by Tom's history that put him at high risk of doing so. Now, remember, Tom already had a quadruple bypass a few years ago, followed by a stroke, a couple smaller strokes, and losing a kidney. Now he was in his mid-60s. If he underwent another open-heart surgery, his body might not fully recover. But there was one type of treatment that might help Tom. A minimally invasive treatment known as transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR. But the TAVR procedure calendars were pretty much already booked up with other patients looking to have the same treatment done. These are patients who most likely had planned for this process over like months or a year because they had had shortness of breath and there wasn't like an immediate need. So they got on the schedule eventually. So after moving Tom around a couple hospitals over a few days, stabilizing his condition as much as possible and even talking about potentially sending him home against the nurse's will until they could plug him into the TAVR schedule. He then suddenly had this massive breathing attack right before they were going to send him home, right there in the hospital, which, let's just say, reprioritized some scheduling. 14 hours later, when I could finally be told and I could understand, all the nurses were all happy. And I said, why are you happy? And they said, because you are now number one. And they bumped everybody. And I was the number one surgery on that Tuesday. After Tom's attack, the medical team started draining the liquid that had filled Tom's lungs. Both my right and left lungs were, you know, 30 to 40 percent full of liquid. And I got to see it all happening. Unfortunately, you're looking at those little tubes that go right into your chest. 
and then they come out and of course they go right into these machines and then right into these uh, five gallon buckets and you get to see but of course while seeing it happening I could see me starting to breathe so much better I mean literally it's laborious to breathe with all that liquid inside because there's not enough space to have your lungs work. Tuesday morning came and the team of Tom's doctors who were going to do the TAVR procedure gathered around his bed and then they took 40 minutes to basically explain what would happen on each of their ends to Tom and to each other. So all the doctors seemed like they were confident and they were ready to go with this TAVR surgery except for one, the anesthesiologist. Because Tom was in recovery from a major attack She was concerned that his body might not take well to the general anesthesia that would be necessary to use in these circumstances. And after the anesthesiologist voiced her concerns to Tom and the group, then the head doctor spoke up. He says, I understand what everybody is saying, except I'm telling you, I think you have to have it done today. Otherwise, he won't make it, sending it to the people. And then I say, "Uh, won't make it, you mean, what do you mean, I won't make it? And he looks at me and says, If you don't go in there now, you will die. You have to go in now. And they all looked around and said, any dissents? And everybody said, nope. I said, okay, go. And literally, I took off. So they moved forward. And instead of cutting open Tom's chest, doctors took a tiny little folded umbrella-like device, inserted it into an artery in his groin, guided this device up through his artery to his heart with a wire, maneuvered it into place, and then unfolded the device, which is typically done with a balloon or maybe built-in springs. And it then replaced his aortic valve with this new scientifically engineered one without invasive surgery. And I need to pause here because there's another person I need to introduce you to. It is a group effort and there are people all over the world who are doing all different components and parts of this larger societal project, but it is making a difference, I think. And there are certainly people who are walking around who we probably pass on a daily basis who have had some kind of procedure that otherwise wouldn't be possible without these types of technologies. That's Steve Cruiser. He's a guy who knows a thing or two about minimally invasive medical implants, similar to the one that Tom had placed in his heart. Steve actually helps people develop devices like implantables like stents and heart valves and others, uh, what they call structural heart implantables. So things that are going to go in and probably be there for a while, ideally, and need to be able to assist the natural biology that's failing in some way uh, with performing the types of functions that are going to keep a patient alive. Steve has worked with around 20 of these devices, which has given him some solid experience, you might say. And many of these products are called structural heart devices, devices that are implanted into the heart in order to perform a function that your heart basically can't do well. And over the past decade or so, some of these devices can be installed without any open heart surgery. Instead, these devices are loaded onto a catheter and guided into the heart through the circulatory system. Just like Tom's TAVR procedure. And Ernest, I gotta say, all of this blew my mind because apparently I, I don't know, haven't been keeping up with my structural heart technology news. Because before talking to Tom and Steve, I had honestly never heard of heart devices that can be inserted into the heart through an artery 
where the doctors like guide the device into place using imaging techniques like echocardiography. Most of these devices have little tiny super high density metals that are embedded in, in different regions of the device. And these radiographic markers are intended to show up very brightly on things like x-rays so that you can see where the device is relative to the tissue structures. I mean, Ernest, have you heard of this? I had actually, but it was very recent. It wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know about this for a long time. And the way I found out about it was, are you familiar with who Kevin Smith is? Yeah, in Hollywood. Actor, writer, et cetera, Actor, director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had a, one of these types of devices or one of these procedures, I should say, done to him a couple of years ago. Oh, really? I believe he had a heart attack. They took him to the hospital. Same type of situation as Tom. Uh, they told him that he had blockages and that if he didn't get this rectified immediately, he was going to die. Kevin Smith is on the mend after a massive heart attack nearly took his life. I had a heart attack, a massive heart attack, and very nearly died. Put a stent in, bam, here I am. Crazy. Dude literally saved my life. He is the first person that I publicly heard talk about having one of these procedures. Yeah. And I was fairly impressed, and it gave me hope for the one day when I will have to have my own tavern procedure. <laughs> You like expect it coming down the pipe. That's funny. Yeah. Just like I, 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 t- I tell my wife now, like I'm in anxious anticipation of the day when I'm an old man and I get assigned my first scooter. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't know about Kevin Smith. I didn't know he had one of these. I knew he had something done with his heart, but I didn't know what it was. Um, apparently, Mick Jagger also had something done like this not too long ago, and his was an official Taver device. So his was similar to what Tom had done. Right. And I'm not a big Mick Jagger fan, but eh. I don't uh. wish like bad health upon him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> On anybody. But yeah, it's a shame that it takes that kind of a situation to open your eyes. Legendary Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger reportedly undergoing heart valve replacement surgery this week in New York. Heart valve surgery is done either through open heart surgery or there's a newer, minimally invasive procedure available. It's called transcatheter aortic valve replacement. It's also known as TAVR. The new valve is implanted inside of a stent, and the stent can go in through a small poke hole in the leg, and it goes up through the aorta. As a matter of fact, I, I'm not going to like tie the two directly together, but it was shortly after I had heard about Kevin Smith that I started going to the gym every day. So uh, <laughs> the, the two might be loosely related. I'm just going to, that's all I'm going to say. That's interesting. Again, I got to give you props. Seven days of the gym is pretty impressive. Yeah, well, I have to undo decades worth of bad behavior. So <laughs> it's penance for a life lived <laughs> in largesse. The huge advantage, obviously, is that what you don't have to do is cut somebody's heart open, wide open, and, and do any kind of surgery that way. Which obviously is a big advantage, especially for patients who might be maybe over the age of 75 or even younger patients with pre-existing medical conditions with their kidneys or maybe something that would make open heart surgery an incredible risk, like in Tom's case. It's great that these minimally invasive procedures are helping, right? People who otherwise wouldn't have gotten this kind of help. Totally. And because, I mean, as you might expect, traditional open heart surgery, while it's incredibly effective for many people, like we've said, it's it's very invasive on the body. It usually, for example, involves the doctor making like a 10-inch cut across the chest and the breastbone and then exposing the heart, which sounds kind of zombie movie-esque. Yes. Did I ever tell you about the time I died? Wait, what? 
Yeah, I guess I hadn't told you that. So wait, whoa, whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, obviously now you have to tell me. And this yeah, better not be like a I had a dream that I died, or no, 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 I was I, a zombie in a movie as an extra or something. Like this better be a legit story to no, just it, it, drop it a bomb a, like that. It is a legit story. So I was living in New Orleans at the time, and I was there with my wife, and we were getting ready to leave for I think dinner. We were in our house, and all of a sudden. I felt my heart rate just accelerating. What? And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And and it kept accelerating. And it kept accel- and, it, and it started getting to the point where I could you could like feel it beating. And I didn't know what it was. And I I mean, I had heard like when it's a heart attack, you can't breathe and it feels like an elephant sitting on you. So I was pretty sure it wasn't that. But something was going on. My Apple Watch started alerting me saying your heart rate is like extremely elevated. Like it was beeping at you or something? I use the Samsung watch, so I don't know. Like- no, just an alert coming on saying elevated heart rate. So one of the things that the Apple Watch does is if, if it thinks you're sitting down, not doing anything, and your heart rate elevates, it will warn you that you have an elevated heart rate while you have no activity. Okay. But my normal resting heart rate is sub 100. It's usually like in the 70s or 80s, I think. This scenario that happened to me my heart rate kept elevating until it was at 200. What? That is okay? so crazy. Incredibly high. And I thought yeah. I was, I felt like I was going to die. So I told my wife, I need to go to the ER right now. So we, she took me to the ER and they, you know, hooked me up to the machine and, and they knew exactly what it was. What was it? What was it? There's some sort of arrhythmia that can happen where there are uh, electrical pulses that go across your heart that keep it in a certain uh, rhythm. Okay. And sometimes in some people, those electrical impulses get uh, scrambled. Okay. And it causes your heart to go into this weird scenario where it's the heart rate is elevating because it's it doesn't know what to do. And the default behavior is to elevate because it thinks that that, you know, pushing more blood is what solves the issue. So it turns out that this is a I wouldn't say common, but it's it's common enough that doctors know what it is when they see it. Okay. And it's one of those where. They don't know what causes it. And I'll never forget this, right? I'm sitting in this room in the ER and the doctor comes in and says, we're going to stop your heart. Oh, my gosh. And of course, I'm sitting here like, you're going to what? And he's (laughs) Uh like, we're going to stop your heart. The only way to correct this fast right now is for us to stop your heart and then we're going to restart it. Oh, my gosh. And because this kind of situation is so rare, they brought in like all the medical students <laughs> into the room. Oh, so to here like I am. To watch this procedure? To watch this procedure happen. So here I am laying on this bed, right, with nothing on but a hospital gown. And even then, it's like halfway off because they have to have all these things attached to my chest. Uh-huh. All these students are in there and they're watching. How many students are we talking about? Five or six of them. It wasn't like there's a dozen, right? It was, That's still a lot of people. They went and got every single one doctor who was doing their rounds <laughs> and brought them all in. No way. See this because it was rare, it didn't happen that often. So, yeah, they inject a chemical, you know, into an IV that essentially stops your heart. And I remember when it, you know, feeling it like feeling the chemical take hold, and then just the feeling of the blood kind of pooling to the center of your body because there's no there's no more pressure pushing it outward, and you get kind of cold, and all of a sudden, like you're hearing just I don't even know how to describe it, like it's not like you go deaf. But your hearing becomes like super muffled as if you're trying to listen to the outside world through yeah. a pair of headphones that are turned off. And then, you know, the nurse takes out the syringe with that chemical, puts the other syringe in, and the doctor's there looking at the heart monitor, watching, you know, it. so it flatlines. 
right? As you would expect. You're dead at that point. Was your wife in the room? Oh, yeah. She was in there and she was scared, obviously. I, oh my gosh. And so I'm, and I'm watching it happen. But you weren't conscious when it flatlined, were you? I was conscious still. Oh, because it it takes takes several seconds. Yeah, for you to lose consciousness. It it, it takes a while for for the brain to lose consciousness, right? So That's crazy. I'm sitting there watching the, the heart rate monitor. I see it flatline. The doctor waits like a couple of seconds, not, not like 20, like we're talking like three or four, right? And then nods to the nurse and she puts the other thing. And all of a sudden, like hard to describe, like imagine like you're someone's playing a movie in slow-mo like of a hospital scene and it's going real slow and it's real muffled. And then all of a sudden, like you accelerate into real time. Oh my gosh. And, like the sound becomes full blast you're hearing the heart machine registering the heartbeat again and you're hearing everybody talking all of a sudden like and then it was fine the arrhythmia was gone i didn't have an issue again but yeah that was the time i actually died in the hospital and it was it was insane gosh that's crazy but you were conscious when you were dead conscious the entire time yeah so uh, and there might be there there might be some argument about whether or not i was medically dead because my brain (laughs) my brain didn't cease to function moving Uh uh-huh but but my heart did flatline for several seconds that is crazy Ernest. have you ever had any problems since i actually have i've had the arrhythmia surface uh, a handful of times since then but (gasps) one of the things the doctor told me was like there are ways you can try to get rid of it on your own so that you don't have to go to the hospital again. And luckily, the handful of times it's happened since then, and mind you, this is this was like, you know, almost a decade ago when this happened. Um, I've been able to get rid of it. Oh, my gosh. But I will say that every time it happens, I am scared that I will have to go to the hospital again. OK, that's so crazy. After I talked about open heart surgery, I thought you're going to like talk about a zombie movie or something. This was so much more interesting than that. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm I'm glad that the medical team working on you knew what they were doing cuz here you are so, today. So am I. Luckily the the doctor was very knowledgeable, got me through it, and one of the things that was great is that he was incredibly confident. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't show concern or worry. He was just like, yep, I know exactly what this is and I know how to fix it and just went with it. And that helped a lot to kind of alleviate some of the concern there. Whereas if a doctor would be like, I don't know what to do. Like panic in their eyes as you see your own heart flatline, I would die. Right. I mean, literally die. I don't even know how to transition away from that. Um, (laughs) Obviously, our heart is important. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) We got completely derailed. From supersonic jets to personalized medicine, industry leaders are turning to Rescale to power science and engineering breakthroughs. Rescale is a full-stack automation solution for hybrid cloud that helps IT and HPC leaders deliver intelligent computing as a service and enables the enterprise transformation to digital R&D. As a proud sponsor of the Big Compute podcast, Rescale would especially like to say thank you to all the scientists and engineers out there who are working to make a difference for all of us. Rescale, intelligent computing for digital R&D. Learn more at rescale.com slash bcpodcast. It just goes to show that our hearts are really fragile and it just takes a moment to kind of put things in perspective. And when you are at high risk, I think, for these open heart surgeries, it can be incredibly terrifying to consider going back into one of those, right? 
Or if you've never been in one at all, you're just high risk. Like that sounds so scary. Whereas these minimally invasive procedures that we've been talking about are often really effective and they have a really quick recovery time. Like, for instance, we mentioned Mick Jagger was back on his feet performing just a few days after this procedure that he had, um, which was one of these minimally invasive TAVR procedures. And if you compare that to traditional recovery time of six to 12 weeks, it's obviously quite a difference. Yes. And also it obviates a lot of bad things that can happen from a recovery of that type, right? Like your body is severely compromised many different ways while you're trying to make that kind of a recovery. And if you can shorten that and shorten the shock to the body, Mm -hmm. the complications that can happen are much less. Well, yeah. I mean, going back to Tom's story, Tom believes that his stroke, which left him with aphasia and took away his language for four years, was probably a result of having, you know, of recovering from that open heart surgery. Yep. You want to keep it as minimally invasive as possible by using these catheter technologies, deploying a device, and if the device is deployed in the right way and is uh, appropriate for the type of pathology that a, a patient may have, then ideally it replaces the function of the diseased or damaged tissue and allows the patient to improve their quality of life and go off and and do all the fun things that they want to do with their family and friends. There are a few different kinds of these devices being implanted in people all around us through their arteries rather than through open heart surgery. And we mentioned that Tom's particular device was TAVR, which is used to basically replace the aortic valve so that it can open and close correctly. And then there's other minimally invasive medical devices that include things like tear or transcatheter edge-to-edge repair, where a thin tube is guided through a vein to a patient's heart, and then a small clip is attached to the mitral valve to help it close more completely, helping restore, again, normal blood flow through the heart. And then there are a few different acronyms assigned to these different devices. There's TAVR, TAVI, or TAVI, I'm not sure how you say that, TIR, TMVR, PAVR. Pavi, and they can be inserted into the body through the veins in a few different locations. So you can insert them through the upper leg, the groin, as Tom had, or just beneath the collarbone or something like that. And these devices have really only been around for a decade or less. In fact, FDA approval was only first granted to an aortic valve device like this in 2011. That makes perfect sense, actually, because I, again, I don't remember hearing about these things until four or five years ago. So it was probably one of those where their use is common at that point, but I just hadn't heard about them. So I'm, I'm assuming most people, unless you like were know related, somebody, you know, immediate family, right. You knew somebody who had it. You didn't hear about it until again, a public figure came out and said, I had this procedure. It saved my life. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that explains why I hadn't heard of this at all until actually researching this episode. And most patients who have one of these procedures done, they typically, as for recovery time, they go home literally the next day. But in Tom's case, since he had had this massive breathing attack and he had all this other stuff going on with his body, they ended up keeping him in the hospital for another four days or so. But then once he was released, recovery was actually pretty easy, much easier than it would have been had he undergone and hopefully survived another open heart surgery. They said you can walk when you get home. Uh, We do a lot of walking and they said, you can drive, nothing to do with your heart, but obviously they knew about my stroke and things. But otherwise, yes, they said, we're going to call you every day just to check in for a week and make sure you're doing okay. But they said, you should be okay. And I was. It is amazing how you become, quote, fully healthy almost overnight. And can I just say, 
how much I love hearing stories like these. I mean, these doctors are heroes, obviously. But when you think about it, so are these engineers and anyone working to create these kinds of devices like Steve. Oh, absolutely. I uh, another medical story. So I had a I had back surgery almost 10 years ago. Man, 10 years ago is rough for you health wise. <laughs> yeah, al- almost 10 years ago. Exactly. And what was incredible was it, it was due to a degenerative condition between some discs because of a, an injury I had sustained many years ago. And the doctors were saying, you know, the only way to fix this is to fuse the spine, which is a very invasive procedure and Ugh. all this stuff. And they were like, hold out as long as you can. Right. And it got to the point where pain was radiating down my legs and I was having trouble walking. So Yikes. so it just so happened I had gone to see a new pain management doctor who said, I know a guy who can fix this with a minimally invasive procedure that doesn't require them to, you know, open up your back and fuse and all this stuff. And he's like, it's not a brand new procedure, but it is newer. There aren't many neurosurgeons who who do this, but let me refer you to him. And I said, at this point, absolutely. Let me go talk to him. Sure enough, the doctor said, absolutely. I can fix that. And you will walk out of the hospital the same day we do the surgery. What? And I didn't believe him, to be honest. But then again, I had no reason to doubt him. So sure enough, we schedule the surgery. I go in. And mind you, again, pain is radiating down my legs. I'm having trouble walking. I'm in a lot of pain when I walk in the hospital. They essentially do something similar to this, where they poke two holes at the very base of your spine, and then they route these tubes up through your spine, your spinal column, what? up to the point where the disc is that's bulging and pushing on your nerves. They cut off the bulge and then remove it out through the bottom of the spine. Again, like magic. And they have to do it through like an, an active x-ray. So there's an x-ray going on kind of yeah. nonstop while they're moving these things and doing. Anyway, long story short, I go in, I have the procedure done, which to me was like, an engineering marvel, as you mentioned, the engineers and others working to create all these kinds of things. Yes. Right? I wake up from the surgery because they obviously had to put me under. And the first thing I notice is I'm in less pain than I was when I went into the hospital. And you might think, well, yeah, because you were under anesthetic and all this stuff. A couple hours later, I walked out of that hospital what? and had less pain from the incision and all the whatever that had happened than I was having from just the damage that that injury was doing to me. That's crazy. So, Do you remember what it was called? Uh, it's like the procedure? A, a laminectomy of some kind. I don't remember. I don't even know why I ask. That is not familiar to me at all. <laughs> But you're <laughs> maybe but somebody your, out there listening knows what that yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> someone will know exactly what I'm talking about. But to your point, the doctors and engineers who develop all these different procedures and devices, they are absolutely heroes because someone like me wouldn't have been able to live as fulfilling of a life as I have if somebody hadn't developed this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So totally they are it. absolutely heroes. That's so cool. I, man, we get to know a lot about. Ernest's health history today. It's totally interesting. And how poor it is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's getting much better, but it's you know it's a it's a gradual process. Seven days a week at the gym. Woo! Right. I wouldn't even <laughs> been able to do that if I hadn't been able to have this back surgery that I had. Right. Man, I would. I yeah. probably honestly, I probably would be in a wheelchair right now if it wasn't oh for that. Oh my gosh, that's so, so. I am incredibly grateful for the people who developed that technology in that process. Oh, seriously. And and this just goes to show how much all of this really does affect everyone in one way or another. I mean, in the space of what, 40 minutes, we learned about both a heart episode you went through and a minimally invasive surgery you underwent. So I don't know, Ernest, I got to say, I hope you have another great story for us in part two of the series. Like, 
I don't know. Did you have a limb like reattached or something? <laughs> That'd make a cool story. I wish I did have a story. I, you know, it did come to mind. There was another time that I almost died. No, you have to save it for part two. It, let's just say it was a close call. It wasn't that I actually died. It was just. Oh, I, like a piano fell out of a building and landed one foot away from you. Well, sort of more, more like I was underwater for a very long period of time and. Almost drowned. Oh, but anyway. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, yeah. Every episode we have to have movie references and some story about how Ernest almost died. <laughs> there you go. Shaper. I'm, I'm becoming the Kenny of the podcast. <laughs> That's yeah, a reference seriously. to all of our South Park South viewers. Park. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't he die in every single episode? That's right. Hey, look. I think Kenny's okay. <laughs> In fact, we're going to pause right here and pick this subject up again, not necessarily the subject of Ernest's health, but the subject of the heart, in the next episode where we will go into depth more with Steve, the structural heart device engineer guy slash undercover superhero, because at some point we have to tell you what all of this has to do with high-performance computing. (laughs) I'll give you a hint. Uh, These devices are designed through computational engineering. Don't tell them! Ernest, they never would have guessed. Okay, so that part might be a little obvious, but you got to hear about how they're designed with engineering because medical devices can be so much more complex than many of the other products that we've talked about so far on this show. I mean, absolutely. Think about the tongue depressor. The very complicated device. I don't even know what a tongue depressor. Oh, that, that's like a. <laughs> shut up, dude. That, isn't that like just a popsicle stick? The, the, the wooden stick. Yeah, it's pretty much a fat popsicle stick. Uh, I was like thinking of some like medical. I was trying uh, to draw. A, 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 I, was, I was trying device, to draw. A you dis- give me a popsicle stick. I was trying to draw a distinction between like a pops uh, uh, a tongue depressor and a structural valve replacement device or something like. There's a big a bit of a gap, delta between those say. two. <laughs> yes. Please join us for part two in the next episode to learn more about how these devices, not the tongue depressor, are designed and how things turn out for Tom as well, because we can't forget Tom. And as always, you can learn more about this episode by visiting bigcompute.org, where you can see photos of Tom and Steve and these types of devices. Yep. So that's going to do it for this first half of the story. And if you want to help spread the word, you can leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, my gosh. I'm not even going to say anything. Or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. Those also. And you can tell a friend about us or a colleague. If you're sitting in the office right now, just lean over and tell your colleague. I don't know why they would be sitting right next to you, but maybe they are. And don't forget, both Jolie and I are prolific Twitterers, so you can tweet us. And always remember to use multi-factor authentication and 321 backups. And I'm not on Twitter like at all. Oh, okay, we, we are going to end this, I swear. Stay safe out there, everybody, and we'll see you in the next episode, or hear you, or you will hear us. My goodness, what did I, like, take this morning? <laughs> Sounds like you took my pre-workout drink. I know, <laughs> I know for real.